Well, as you know, most of you know, we've been spending a lot of time over the last few weeks in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Considerable time in just those three verses. And I hope that it's been made very clear to your mind that those verses introduce a theme that, in my estimation, is John's main point of the whole letter, which is that there is a connection between knowing Christ and obeying Christ. I think we come to see that point so clearly in these verses, and we walk away with that as just a a laser beam focus on that thought. And I want to spend one more Sunday on this theme But I want to do so, if you see in your bulletin, from a different passage of Scripture. We're not going to be in 1 John today. I want us today to look at a text that I've read a couple times over the past few weeks as a a support for the ideas that we've been seeing in 1 John chapter 2. It's a passage of great importance on the topic of knowing and obeying Christ. We see both those ideas of knowing Him and obeying Him. In this, in this text, these few verses. And it's actually the place in the Bible where I believe we most clearly see Jesus himself making the connection between knowing him and obeying him. So it's important to know what John thinks about it because he's giving us the words of Christ. But more importantly, to hear from Jesus' own, own mouth what it is to see the connection between knowing and obeying him. So... The text that we're going to consider this morning is from Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 and verses 21 to 23. And as I said, we've read these verses a few times over the past couple of weeks. And so I thought it would be good for us to take all of our time this morning to unpack and dive into what's really going on in these in these really important verses from Christ. So let's begin by reading the words of our Savior in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. We're, we're jumping into the middle, really to the end of his Sermon on the Mount. So it would be, it would be important for us to understand the context of the sermon. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but this is the type of sermon that he would have given throughout all the region of Galilee. He would give this sermon from place to place to place. And we see elements of it in the Gospels in different places. And usually, as far as we can tell, he ended this sermon with this great warning. Several verses of warning. And so here we see Jesus is wrapping up his his Gospel of the Kingdom. And he's doing so with a very urgent warning. So let's read together Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. The Lord says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Now we've been considering the topic of knowing and obeying Christ from 1 John 2 in such a way so as to be focusing on ourselves. That's not necessarily a wrong thing to do. But we've been evaluating how we can know that we know Christ or how we obey Him. It's been focused on evaluating ourselves. And we've evaluated from our own vantage point what it means to know Christ or to obey Christ. But as we consider this passage in Matthew, I think we're able to see a a little bit of a different view. We're going to consider these concepts from a different angle. Along with teaching us what it means for us to know and obey Christ in these verses, I believe that this text this text also clearly reveals what it means for Jesus to be known and to be obeyed. It answers the question of what does all this mean from his point of view? There's a clear perspective about the character of Jesus in these verses as regards what it means for him to be known and to be obeyed. 
And it's an element of his character that I believe we often fail to consider as much as we should. So here's what we're going to be learning about Christ in connection to what it means to know and obey him. In, in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, I think it's really clear if we look at these verses that we are encountering Jesus the judge. We're encountering Jesus the judge. We have to realize that these verses are not so much about the people who call him Lord, Lord, who think they're doing many things in his name. It's not so much about them as it is about the character and nature of this judge. So we want to rightly know and obey this judge from what we see in these verses. And there are four things in this text that will help us to do that, that will help us to know his character better. So from these verses, here are the four characteristics of Jesus, the judge. We're just really going to follow them as we see them in the verses. And they're alliterated for you, so they'll be a little bit easier to to write down and remember. I'll just give all four of them to you up front, and then we'll go through them one by one. First of all, we see the judge's authority. Secondly, we see the judge's assessment. Thirdly, we see the judge's appellants, or those who appeal to him, those who make appeal. And then fourthly, we will see the judge's answer, his authority, his assessment, his appellants, and his answer. And what I hope that we all walk away with this morning is one very important idea that must come become lodged in our minds. I hope that we all can see that the only thing that really matters concerning us is what Jesus thinks about us. When we think about how we know him or how we obey him, what matters is is if he deems it true that we know him or if he deems it true that we obey him. I can subjectively think that I know Christ or obey Christ based on my own criteria, but that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It matters if Jesus himself views me as one who knows him, if Jesus himself views me as one who obeys him. Our feelings and our experience, subjective experiences, don't really matter at the end of the day. What matters is the judgment of this judge, Jesus. So let's begin by considering, first of all, Jesus' authority. Let's consider the judge's authority. And we begin by simply thinking about what must be true about Jesus in order for him to say what he says in these verses. I think if we paused and spent some time considering the implications of what he's really saying here, it would really stun us. So look just with me at verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Essentially, he's saying, not everyone who who calls me Lord enters heaven, but those who do enter heaven are those who do the will of my Father. That's essentially what he's saying. And in this verse, we see that Jesus is actually making these implicit claims. He's claiming by these words to know with certainty. He knows for certain the basis upon which a person can enter heaven or not. In in this verse, he's claiming that those who wish to enter the kingdom make their appeal to him. Because he says, many will say to me, And he's even insinuating with how he says these things that he's equal to the Father. He's making some very bold claims by what he's saying here. And what is really going on is that Jesus is claiming to have the highest authority imaginable. He's claiming to have an authority higher than any earthly authority by saying that some will enter the kingdom on account of doing the will of the Father, but others will not enter the kingdom because they tried to enter a different way. In saying that, he is claiming to be able to determine on account of his own authority the basis by which entrance for heaven is judged. He's saying, I have the authority to make that call. And more than that, 
because he says that, he, that appeals will be made to him, he's claiming that he is the one who actually makes that decision. Not only does he know the basis, but he's saying, I'm going to be making the call. He's not only the constitution and the law, but he's also the judge who interprets it. And then even more than that, by calling God his Father in heaven, Jesus was equating himself with God, as he does in many other places in the gospel accounts. And all of this is leading us to realize that Jesus is claiming all authority concerning the kingdom of heaven. And when I say that, most of us, probably all of us, say, well, yeah, I know that. I know Jesus claims all authority. I know that Jesus has all authority, and I myself even submit to that authority. And I'm sure you do know that. I know that you know that he alone made provision for you as a sinner to be brought into this kingdom. But what I think we don't fully realize is the full scope of Jesus's authority. The things that Jesus is saying in verse 21 require a degree of authority that none of us has ever tangibly experienced or even seen on earth. And we don't really have a means to compare it. You see, all of the authority structures that we see on earth are essentially built around a person receiving authority from something or from someone. They get authority from something outside of themselves. Ancient emperors and dictators were given authority either by their military or by their parents, because they were the king before them, or from some religious body. So they, they got their authority from somewhere. In countries such as ours, the highest leaders are given authority by means of a, of a governing document, like a constitution. Even police officers or judges or any other person who wields some kind of authority on earth, even parents, they have, that, they have that authority only because it's been given to them, not because they inherently have it on their own. No one wakes up one day and becomes more authoritative than the person down the street just because of who they are. No powerful ruler in the history of the earth was essentially more authoritative than the people they ruled. The only difference has to do with to whom authority is given. There's really no essential human difference between you and the president of the United States. It's just that person has been given authority that has not been given to you. That's really the only difference. So if we were to think about what true authority would look like if a king or an emperor or some other single ruling figure over a kingdom, what would it look like for them to truly have absolute and ultimate authority? Authority that's not dependent on it being given to them. What would that look like? Well, I think there are certain conditions that would have to be met in order for that to be the case. First of all, I think the person would have to be accountable to no one. Zero accountability. They'd have to answer to no one at all. There could be no board, no cabinet, no checks and balances, no electorate, no judiciary outside of themselves, no source of law other than that person. There would have to be a situation in which no one would even for a second be able to question the king. Not just that the, that the subjects wouldn't dare to raise a question publicly out of fear, even more than that. There would have to be a situation in which none of the subjects would actually think in their heart, hmm, I wonder if the king's right. That's true authority, where no one ever questions them. Secondly, we'd also have to have a situation where the person would actually have to be more powerful than everyone else combined. Where they in themselves had more power than the, the combined forces of everyone that they ruled. That would be true authority. For a single person to be able to be considered to be singularly authoritative... They would have to be so powerful in, them own self, in their own self that no one would even dare try to overthrow them, even by combining their own strength. To those who are ruled by a person with absolute authority, they would never have the thought, 
cross their mind. Oh, if, if only we got everyone together and joined forces, we could overthrow them. As many revolutions have, have had that happen. If a person singularly has authority in and of themselves, then any revolution, they could squash it by themselves. Such that the people wouldn't even consider it. Because they know that their ruler is that much more powerful. No one does that to a king. No one rises a rebellion with a king who in and of himself has that much authority. And then thirdly, this is really important. If someone had ultimate authority, they would have to have eternal and indestructible authority. It would have to be in a kind of authority that could never be removed from them. The fact that mighty David ruled in Israel and that he then died and gave the throne to his son Solomon, that evidences the fact that David's authority came from somewhere else because he had it for a time and they had to give it to someone else because he died. There was a point in time when his authority ceased to be with him. When a king or an emperor dies, his heir then borrows the authority that he borrowed from his father, from his predecessor, and so on. The line of rulers over a kingdom demonstrates that inherent authority did not rest in any of them, or else they never would have given it up. Because they received it from another, and then passed it on to those who followed after them. But a true authority... Someone who has true, ultimate authority takes his authority from nowhere else. He doesn't share it. He doesn't lose it. He doesn't increase authority or diminish in it. He doesn't cease to have it, nor did he ever begin to have it. If someone has ultimate authority, that person has always had and will always have authority. Because then there would be, if, if there was a time when the person came to begin to have it, then that meant, meant that there's a, somewhere he got it from. So ultimate authority is eternal. So the idea of true authority is really more complex than we tend to think it is. So what kind of authority is Jesus' authority? Does he inherit it from someone else? Does he get it from one person only to pass it on to someone else later? Does he require for his justice to be defined outside of himself? Of course, the answer to all those questions is no. Jesus possesses pure authority in and of himself. He has not granted it from a higher authority. He is not a temporary ruler who inherited it and will one day give it to another. All essential attributes for his authority are embodied and defined in his very person. So he's dependent on no one. Jesus is true and pure authority, unlike any authority that we could even imagine. And this is why he can say, not everyone who says to me. Because he is the one to whom all creation will answer. And it's also why he can call God his father in such a way as to imply equality with God. And it's also why in verse 23 in Matthew 7, he is the one who judges and he is the one who sentences and he is the one who answers the appeals that are made. He does all of it. And it's also why he can say who will and who will not enter the kingdom. So this judge has true and ultimate authority. We have to understand this judge's authority. It's unlike any other authority we can even imagine. And that brings us to consider a second characteristic of this great judge. Not only the judge's authority, but secondly, the judge's assessment. What does the judge decide? Jesus' claim to authority runs throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, and it's very explicit in these verses that we're looking at, as we've already observed. But his claim is perhaps most notably observed in the fact that he assumes the responsibility of deciding who will or who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I wouldn't want that job, but Jesus owns it. Notice first that Jesus says that he alone makes that assessment. He does not leave it up to you to decide who enters or not. 
He doesn't leave up to the religious elite to decide, not the pope or a priest or an elder or a pastor or a preacher or a missionary or anybody on earth makes that call. Jesus doesn't say that you can find your own way to God. You aren't the one who decides how to get there. He doesn't endorse the path of sincerity. Just because you're sincerely pursuing him means, oh, okay, I guess that'll, that'll work out okay. He doesn't give the power to an institution, to a man, to an office, to anyone else to come up with their own idea concerning how the kingdom of heaven is to be entered into. Jesus alone decides the criteria by which sinners may enter his kingdom. And how does he do that? How does Jesus assess who is in and who is out of the kingdom of heaven? Well, he explains it to us with a negative statement and a positive statement. Look at verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the negative statement. But, then the positive one, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, it's not a matter of calling Jesus Lord, Lord, but it is a matter of doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. And this is what we've been talking about in 1 John 2, 3-6. Doing the will of his Father is the same as obeying him in the matter that is found in John's letter. To do the Father's will is not merely a set of rules that one must follow, but it's rather a heart condition which causes a person to want to do God's will. That's what it means to be doing the will of the Father, just like John has been saying that we are to keep his commandments. And what Jesus means is not that a person can earn the kingdom by means of their own perfect adherence to the Father's will. That's impossible. Rather, he means that there never was a person who entered the kingdom who did not also evidence in his life obedience to the will of the Father. They're two inseparable realities. In other words, if you have been brought into the kingdom by the power of God then you will demonstrate it by the kind of obedience that can only occur by means of the power of God. And it is Jesus who makes that call as to whether or not you obey. So here is the judge's assessment. <coughs> Jesus will assess whether or not you do the will of the Father, and in so doing, he determines... Whether or not you enter the kingdom of heaven. He makes that assessment. He makes that call. Not you, not me, not anyone else. Jesus is the judge who has all authority. And as such, he alone can make the assessment concerning the eternal outcome of the souls of all mankind. And as we see in the first few words of the next verse, verse 22, Jesus does this at some point in the future. Verse 22 begins with, On that day. So it means that that call hasn't been made yet. It's going to happen sometime still in the future. So what day is that that he's referring to? And I, I believe that Jesus is referring to his, his final act as king over all creation. Right before he delivers the kingdom to God, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15.24. Right before the new heavens and the new earth descends, as Revelation 21 describes, we find that right before those things occur, as the culminating act of all authority, after Jesus has successfully ruled over the entire universe, and after he has finally banished Satan and his demons to the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, after that, we read about that day, Beginning in Revelation 20 and verse 11. You can turn there if you want. I believe this is the day that Jesus is referring to. And not only because I think it fits into the eschatological views that I hold, but also because of all the similarities between what Jesus is saying in 21 to 23 of Matthew 7 and what we read in Revelation 20. Look with me at Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. <coughs> we read this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, 
Earth and sky fled away, for there was no place found for them. This is one with great authority. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is what I believe to be the, a more full description of what Jesus is referring to in Matthew seven twenty two. This is the final day in which the final verdict will be made for those who never truly submitted to the full lordship of Christ during their lives. You might think that the events of the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 belong to those who are overtly wicked. Those who were the the dirty, rotten, scoundrel thieves and immoral persons and idolaters and murderers. Yes, it is a day for those persons, but it is also a day, an event for all who would never repent of their inward wickedness too, even if they looked squeaky clean on the outside. This sobering day of judgment is one in which some people will approach Christ the judge in anger and in fury and in rage. They will be defiant against him until the end. But I believe it is also a day in which many will come to Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, and they will present an appeal to him. Many will be judged according to Jesus' authoritative assessment and they will reply to him with an empty appeal because they will be confused as to why they're there. And with that thought, we move on to the third characteristic concerning this judge. We must see that he will be met on that day by certain appellants. Those who appeal in court. A-P-P-E-L-L-A-N-T-S. Appellants. Those who come and approach the judge with an appeal. You Judge, you've given me the verdict, but I would like to appeal your decision. And what we read in Matthew 7.22 should be regarded by us all to be a great manifestation of the mercy of this judge. We have to realize that he is obligated to give us no warning about this precarious scenario that may occur to any one of us. Yet in his deep mercy, he tells us in this sermon what it is for them to be considered the most sobering and fearful reality in all eternity. Those who were that close to the kingdom. Those who on the outside looked as if they possessed it, but on the inside never knew him. That's the most sobering reality in all the universe. There will be some at this great judgment who do not approach Christ in defiance and resistance. There are the individuals who will think that there has been just one big giant misunderstanding. They died as church members. They were good neighbors according to their estimations. Maybe they even were those who would evangelize and they read their Bibles They claimed Christ as their Savior. They had the bumper sticker that said, Jesus is Lord. They prayed prayers of commitment and they made decisions for Christ. Yet here they are, sentenced to eternal condemnation. Something is wrong here in their minds. And this is how they arrive at that conclusion. These are those who died without true repentance and faith and who never left all to follow Jesus. These are those who trusted in their sincerity and in the fact that they they meant well. They had good intentions. And when they awoke after death, they found themselves in torments. Their souls were not at rest. They sensed darkness and separation. This is what it is to be in the spiritual state known as hell. We see that the rich man was in this place who interacted with Lazarus in the story that Jesus gave. Their body's in the grave, but their spirit is in this place of torments known as hell. And then after a time of great despair in that spiritual place, they will be summoned. 
They will find that their souls are reunited with their bodies, but it's not the same body they had before. It's like it, but it's, it's different. It's a renewed kind of body, one that's prepared to inhabit somewhere physically for all eternity. And they're summoned in this new resurrected body to appear before one who is sitting on a great white throne. And they're called to stand before the judge who then opens the books And all their sins begin to be listed out. Every evil thought, every evil deed, every evil word, all of it. And what will be absent from that list of things read out are any true pattern of obedience to God's will. And at this point, we can make a clear connection between this and what we've been thinking about in 1 John chapter 2. Because there must be a similarity between the kind of obedience that those poor souls will be lacking on that day and the kind of obedience that John is arguing that we must have if we can claim to know Christ. When the life of the self-righteous sinner is read aloud for them to hear they will realize that their lives were devoid of true obedience. There will be no record of them having obedience that begins with a pure heart. No record of obedience that is birthed out of walking with God and fearing God and loving God, as we considered a few weeks ago. There will be no record of them having an obedience that matches their claim to knowing Christ. They will not be able to provide the only authentic evidence of knowing him. And there will also be no record of them caring about obedience to the whole Bible. Well, maybe they cared about checking the box in that verse and the box in that verse, but the whole of the Bible, they they avoided it or made excuses for various parts of it. And most of all, there will be no record of them living like Jesus lived. They didn't imitate him at all. And because there will be no record of such an obedient lifestyle, they will be sentenced to the lake of fire. And at this point, I should be very clear to make this point to you, that it is not on the basis of a person's obedience that they are escaped from this judgment. Those who have escaped this judgment, even though they do evidence that kind of a lifestyle that is obedience to the will of God, that is not the thing that qualifies them to be saved from wrath. We are not saved because of our obedience. May we never think that to be the case. We're saved from hell because of the life and death of Christ. That is our basis for salvation. His obedience counts for us before the Father. His death forgives our sins before the Father. So that alone is the basis of our entrance into heaven and our salvation from wrath. But he always saves by his life and death those whom he also transforms. We have to be clear on that. 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 6 And many other texts in the Bible make it clear that those who are freed from judgment are those who are also freed from sin. And we are alive to righteousness. And so it is that we evidence that salvation by means of the obedience that his power creates in us. So we just have to be clear. On judgment day, they're condemned because they are not found in Christ. And on Judgment Day, we are saved because we are in Christ, because we're connected to Him, not because we're so obedient. It just so happens to be that those who are obedient are 100% of the time those who have been saved by His power. We have to be clear on that. But the deceived religious persons only evidence a kind of obedience which they define and which they can easily attain to on their own. And so they will likely be shocked by the time they hear that they have not measured up to Christ's standard because they measured up to their own standard. And so with one last effort, they will make their final appeal. They will become an appellant in the court of the judge of the whole universe. They will dare open their mouth 
against the verdict that was rendered to them. And they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And you can hear the urgency in their voices. They know, at least in their heads, who this judge is. So they cry to him, Master, Lord, they recognize him. They know him to be a judge of righteousness, so they proclaim their righteous merit. Did we not proclaim your word? That's prophecy. And they say, did we not do work to undermine your enemy? We cast out demons. We're on your side. And they say, did we not do many other righteous things? And they know him also to be the one who wants glory. They know that, that Jesus would have wanted them to do things for his sake because they say, did we not do these things in your name? In your name? In your name for your glory. So they appeal with knowledge of his authority. They call him Lord. They appeal with knowledge of his assessment. They give evidence of what they think he's looking for. And they even appeal with an appeal to his honor. They state that all that they did was in the judge's name. And then to top it off, it seems as if in this text... They have all joined together as one chorus of self-righteous sinners. It appears as if in this scene, it is not just one self-deceived person appealing to the judge. It looks like all of them, millions of them, have banded together before him. Notice Jesus says that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did We not prophesy. Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? Looking around at as a chorus. Making their collective appeal to the Lord. Seems pretty convincing, doesn't it? At least if they are convinced that they're having an overwhelming appeal. They think so. But then fourthly, we move to, in Matthew 7, again, the judge's answer to this collective appeal. Here is the judge's reply to their appeal in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, this chorus of people rising up in appeal against me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are four parts to this answer. First of all, his answer is final. Jesus says that he will declare this to them. And the word for declare there is in the form of, of, in the Greek language, of a formal, public, even a binding confession statement in the court of law. When this kind of final confession is made, a person is staking their entire legal well-being on it. Jesus is saying, this is my final answer. There are no more appeals after he makes his confession. What he is about to say cannot be overturned in all eternity. The end of the discourse with this judge has already passed. So first of all, it's final. Second of all, the judge's answer is personal. Jesus begins his final answer with these words, I never knew you. Or literally, never did I know you. Now, Paul reveals to us in Colossians 1.16 that this judge of all men was also the creator of all men. In John 2.24-25, we know that Jesus knows all people and he knows what is in all people. So how can he say to these persons that he's about to destroy that he never knew them because he made them and he knows what's in them? Well, the word for knowledge in this verse often conveys more than just acquaintance in the New Testament. And we've looked at that already in 1 John. It implies intimacy, personal fellowship. It means that there is a close-knit bond one to the other. And so Jesus is essentially saying to these people, I was never close to you. 
One commentator describes what Jesus means in this way. He says, It is as though Christ said to them, You did not seek me during your earthly pilgrimage. In fact, I seldom entered into your thoughts. We did not walk together. We did not delight in each other's fellowship. You did not ask counsel from me. You did not heed my teaching or obey my commands. I did not know you then, and I do not know you now. The judge is not addressing the one who is appealing to him with respect to how they relate to the law. He's not appealing to them with with respect to how they relate to society or with respect to how they relate to an idea. Jesus is evaluating them based on how they relate to him personally. He says, I never knew you. Not, you didn't know my law. Not, you didn't know my people. He's saying, you didn't know me. A preacher once said, It is a common saying among evangelicals that the most important thing in a person's life is to know Jesus. Although there is a great deal of truth in that statement, it may be more appropriate to reverse the order and say that whether we claim to know Jesus is not nearly as important as whether Jesus knows us. We cannot live in intimate fellowship with Jesus for all of eternity unless we live in intimate fellowship with him right now. Not only is this judge's answer final and personal, but thirdly, his answer is also damning. There is no curse for sinners in all eternity more potent than the one Jesus says that he will give to these false converts. There's no woe pronounced upon a man or woman compared to what Jesus says next in Matthew 7.23. There's no lament great enough to capture the bitter sorrow that drips from these words. Jesus the judge will issue his final answer upon these ones who thought for sure they would enter his kingdom. And he not only will reveal the fact that they are unknown to him as a close friend, that's bitter enough, but he also will then condemn them with this horrific and terrifying command. He will say, depart from me. But does that seem too harsh? Again, this collection of people are likely all religious people that you know personally may very well be in this group one day. Probably a certainty that some of you will have gone to church with some of the people who will be in this group. There may even be some in your family who will be in this group. How can this be the right thing for Jesus the judge to do to these ones that we love and care about? Well, we have to lastly see from what Jesus says in verse 23 that the judge's answer is not only final and personal and damning, but it is also just It's right. The judge's answer is just. The Lord and King and judge of all the universe hears the appeal and he speaks with finality and he speaks his answer because he was personally wronged by these ones and he speaks in irreversible condemnation to all of them. And he is just in all this because these people are those who are, as he says, The workers of lawlessness. They are those who characteristically are laboring to yield a product which is described as being without law. They're working, making something, and the fruit of their work is that which is opposed to Christ's law. They toil to be freed from his law. They work not to do God's law, but to upend it, to reverse it, to get rid of it. They strive to usurp it and to replace it with a law of their own. Remember, God's law in Psalm 19 is said to be sweeter than honey. And they would say to that law, not only no thank you, but I would like to replace it with something of my own making. So their sentence is just because they have lived their own lives, not only in violation to God's law, 
not only in neglect to God's law, but they have sought to undermine God's law by replacing it with their law, thus making themselves greater than God. They have fashioned their own idea of what obedience looks like. Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 4 sheds light onto why this kind of false obedience is so bad and why it does indeed deserve eternal punishment. We read there in Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 4, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And I hope you heard it as I read through that. Did you hear all of the references to God's law? It was that which was heard Speaking about the law of God that has been proclaimed for centuries. It was the message that proved to be reliable. More than that, the message given by angels that proved to be reliable. It's the law that was substantiated by Israel receiving every curse that it promised for disobedience. It is what was declared by the Lord. Jesus himself declared this law. He said, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. It is what was witnessed to by all the miraculous gifts. Those miracles done by the apostles, the tongues, the healings, the prophecies, all of them were for the purpose of affirming this beautiful law of God. And in the middle, there in Hebrews 2, it's referred to as salvation. God's law is salvation. In light of the overwhelming truth of God's law, the writer of Hebrews there explicitly says, how shall we escape if we neglect this? And the answer clearly is that you won't. You will not escape hell if you are without law, if you are a worker of lawlessness. If you neglect God's instruction, if you neglect God's salvation, you cannot hope to escape his punishment. In other words, if we won't obey Christ his way, then we will not escape his sentence as the judge. And as I close this morning, I want to bring up something that I mentioned just a few moments ago. I want us to realize that this text in Matthew 7 is one of of the most obvious manifestations of the mercy of Jesus that we could ever see. Yes, it's sobering. Yes, it's a very clear and poignant warning to us and to all who hear it. But it's actually a great manifestation of mercy. You see, Jesus is not a judge who hopes to crush all his enemies as victims of his great ruthlessness. He's not a judge who wants to elevate and exalt his power by means of destroying as many enemies as he can. He's not a judge who's looking to score points against all of his foes. That's not the kind of just judge that he is. Rather, Jesus is a judge who hopes to spare sinners of his just wrath for their sin. He warns them in truth and in love. Jesus is a judge who wants to elevate and exalt his power, not by judging, but by saving. He wants to make much of his glory and power by sparing sinners of his wrath, by saving them by means of his death. And Jesus is a judge who's looking to open the eyes of his enemies so that they might see his beauty and his grace. And so he speaks plainly and clearly for all to understand. What a merciful judge. What a merciful savior he is to make this known to us. And I hope that we've all been able to come to see his mercy towards sinners just a little bit better through his word this morning. 
To see that, yes, he demands obedience if we're to know him. And yes, he's the judge who's righteous and who makes all these calls because he has all authority. But he is the judge who is merciful and kind towards sinners all the time. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to understand more clearly the nature of our Savior. And you've allowed us to do that this morning as we've considered this powerful text of Scripture. Help us to see Christ not only as judge, and that's right for us to see him that way, but may we see him in his mercy as he is making clear to sinners that this is a day still future. And while there is still breath in our lungs... There is still time to avoid this fate. In case, Father, there's anyone here today who is on track to being one of the ones in the great crowd who says, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And then who will then hear, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. In case there's someone who is As of right now, on the course to be in that group, I pray that they would see the mercy of the judge now so that they might be spared from his wrath later, that your spirit would overwhelm them with understanding and with light to see that they have been falsely assured up to this point. May they see that in clarity. I don't pray for a false sense of emotion or guilt or a... uh, some kind of feeling that makes us feel nervous about our state. That's not what we're after. I I hope those who truly are in Christ feel confidence at this moment. But those who are not in him, those who do not know him as they ought to know him, that they would truly feel with clarity the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that they would be awakened to their state and would turn to the judge for mercy and beg him for forgiveness because he surely will give it now. Today is the day of salvation. And so we pray that your spirit would do that work even in our midst. We pray that the spirit would do that work amongst those we love and know who may be in this boat, those who are headed towards a a very bitter end. We pray that you would help them to be awakened to their plight that they might escape the wrath that is to come. Thank you for your mercy and your grace and that we can see it clearly in your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name.